WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Things get tense between Holcomb administration officials and lawmakers. The Indiana Black Legislative Caucus praises progress at the State House, plus more Todd Rokita side gigs and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending March 12, 2021. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, lawmakers had tense exchanges with members of Governor Eric Holcomb's administration over legislation that would curb the governor's emergency powers. Those bills, a reaction to Holcomb's orders during the COVID-19 pandemic, would empower the General Assembly to act during long-term emergencies, and they would handcuff the governor from taking some of the same steps he took during COVID. State Health Commissioner Dr. Chris Box says the emergency powers are crucial. Because of the foresight of this body decades ago to create this once-in-a-lifetime emergency authorities, we have been able to save lives through COVID-19 testing, contact tracing, and PPE distribution. State Department of Homeland Security head Steve Cox said the proposed legislation would have a drastic impact on the state's ability to respond to disasters. Lawmakers pushed back, like in this exchange between Republican Senator Mark Messmer and Cox. I want one example. How does this bill change that? So the, so what I'm asking is, is that in order for us to be able to make, would, make appropriate changes. Okay, sir. so you're just not going to answer the question. Lawmakers also took testimony from some legal experts who cast doubt on some of the legislation's constitutionality. How will the Holcomb administration's strategy impact these bills? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwanis, host of Indiana Lawmakers. And Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Mike O'Brien, we've talked on this show about the Holcomb administration getting a little more involved in a public way on any number of pieces of legislation, particularly these. Was this a good move? Did this work the way they wanted it to? I think it did. One, they've been very public, I mean, for almost almost a year now with the governor's daily press conferences that turned to weekly as the, the course of the year went on. Um, to say that Governor Holcomb hasn't been high profile in, in addressing and responding to, to the COVID uh, pandemic is, is too far. Um, the alternatives, the, the approach to the hearing would have been not sending agency heads, sending people at a staff level, send one person, send a deputy chief of staff from the governor's office, something like that. That would have been far worse. I mean, you had to kind of get up in front of these committee members, these members of the General Assembly who are really reflecting, I think, the, what they're hearing back home and the frustrations they're hearing back home, a prolonged, not total lockdown, obviously, and it's been an easing over time and certainly over the last two months. Uh, but these legislators are in town here because, and, and they're taking the approach they're taking because they're hearing that from their constituents. Now, whether or not if we look in hindsight and say, okay, well, if they had the authority they're, they're seeking now, or, or a year ago, would they, they, they may have been in session in May repealing a mask mandate when it would have looked, it would have been the reactionary thing to do 
it would have been the popular thing to do, but it would have been the wrong thing to do. That, and everyone would have realized that pretty quick as the entire world started wearing masks, um, and you couldn't really go anywhere without wearing one. You know, so it's those types of, of situations that you've got to be careful in what kind of authority you give. I think, I think layman's bill starts getting to a pretty good place. Um, I think the Legislative Council being in charge of the agenda under that legislation is important because those are legislative leaders. It's not 150 people that are going to be like, you know, knee-jerk reactionaries to something that's happening in the midst of a crisis. Um, so I think, they're, I think they're getting there. And I've said before, I don't think it's inappropriate for the legislature to, to have some kind of advisory role in all this. The, it was tense. It was ten, you know, Nikki was in the room. It was tense at times. Was that perhaps the best look we've had since the pandemic? As Mike just mentioned, you know, legislators reflecting what they're hearing from their constituents at home. Was this the best look we've had at the frustration that Hoosiers feel with the governor's administration and the orders that he's issued? I don't. I, I think they're misplacing their frustration. Okay. I, t with all due respect to Governor Holcomb, he's not responsible for the pandemic. Okay. He's not. And relative to other Republican governors, he's done a decent job of keeping it under control. Nobody likes the fact that we have been in a lockdown and we've had to wear masks and we had to do these things. But they're necessary. Okay. Th this committee, like the rest of the Republicans in the legislature, are completely missing the boat. They want to fight cultural wars. The more important question, from my point of view, is the state's about to get, what, between 3 and $4 billion of revenue? Are we having any discussion about where that goes? Are they using their power of the purse to see that teachers finally get some compensation or some of the much-needed infrastructure gets done? They're not even talking about that. They're talking about fighting yesterday's wars because they don't like the fact that we have a pandemic. Well, tough. Nobody does. Nikki, uh I'll get back to what, uh, one of Ann's points in a second, but I wanted to ask, in terms of the idea of their anger being misplaced, something that struck me was hearing from these lawmakers uh, at this committee hearing yesterday, they were frustrated. They said they, did, they felt like they weren't informed by the Holcomb administration, um, and, and they felt like they had no voice because they couldn't come back into session. But Governor Holcomb has said repeatedly, and I don't think he's lying, that he met regularly with legislative leaders, we saw pictures of that, quite frankly, during the pandemic, and that he repeatedly asked legislative leaders, do you need to come back into session? And they told him no. Are lawmakers, should lawmakers be more angry at their leadership? I mean, maybe. I, I think they really are just, I think they want the answers before we know what the answers is. Like, they seem to express that they don't know where we're going and things like that. And that's because they're making these decisions, you know, every couple of days or, or once a week or whatever. So there's not a lot of time to build in, okay, now we inform the legislature and now we inform these people and then we tell the public. So when they're getting the information at the same time as the media, that feels like a slap in the face to them, I think. I do think one interesting thing, I think the point of having all these agency heads come up was to show, everyone talks about the mask part of these orders and the early shutdowns. But hundreds of things have been done in these orders in the last year. And these agencies were trying to show how they had to do them on the fly and they maybe had to change them the next month when the federal government changed something. So they were trying to show how all these powers were used in a larger scope. And instead, the lawmakers saw it as them taking some sort of victory lap for all the great things we did. Yeah, we did hear that. Um... One thing that Ann said is, is the idea of all of this money that came to the state through the CARES Act last year and is coming to the state now through the new COVID relief package, billions and billions of dollars. 
we don't know what these emergency powers bills are going to look like when we get to the end of session. Can we pretty much guarantee that it's going to include something about the legislature having more of a role in how that money is spent? I think that's a pretty safe guess because a lot of lawmakers uh, haven't heard as much from leadership, but I've heard it from rank and file. They say, yes, that's something that's very important to them. When you talk about uh, a process in which members of the General Assembly do write the budget, and it starts, you know, in the House. That's the way these things go, and it goes to the Senate, and we all know how that works. It's in the textbooks we all had in civics class. Uh, and, but with the CARES Act money, it's sort of it's a different animal. You know, theoretically, the governor, as we've seen with some of the earlier funding, could dole it out as he sees fit. And that's not going to sit well with them. So I think there will be those provisions. You know, I would just point out, though, that this to watch this tug of war, it's sort of uh, an odd argument taking place because keep in mind Eric Holcomb did not nor did any of his predecessors ever seek this emergency authority. I don't think uh, anybody ever went and said I want this, I must have this. So this sort of aggressive like we're taking it back from you uh, attitude is a little misplaced because they're the ones who thrust it upon him over the years anyway. Well, Whether it was after Katrina, lawmakers at least, but, but I yes, mean, the I'd, legislature. I'd be surprised if any governor ever actually actively sought or lobbied for these powers that are being, for which he's being criticized. One thing on the money issue too though is, you know, part of the Holcomb administration's argument here is we have to be flexible, we have to make split second decisions sometimes. With the money, that isn't something that happens in a split second. That takes a while, as we saw, to dole out. So it seems like getting the legislature involved wouldn't even meet that hurdle that, that the whole administration officials have spending their time about. on that well. and not on things that went in the past. All right. Well, the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus says its call to action days bringing advocates to the statehouse are making an impact on the legislature. Organizations including the Indiana Poor People's Campaign and Concerned Clergy of Indianapolis showed up at the State House, as did citizens from around the state. People sent letters and emails and made calls, and black caucus leaders say that advocacy has helped halt some legislation they oppose and push forward bills they support. And Representative Renee Pack says it's not over. There's more to do. Your voice has been heard. Your voices have been heard. Keep talking. Keep writing. Black Caucus Chair Robin Shackelford says there's a continued need for implicit bias training at the legislature. I know some people give training like a bad red mark, but if you're going to actually change people's beliefs and change how they feel about things, they have to be educated. Shackelford says she and House Speaker Todd Houston have made progress on getting such training implemented. And Delaney, is the progress cited by the Black Caucus sustainable? I hope so. I mean... Frankly, there are a few, a very few racists in the Republican caucus. I would like to see the Republican caucus say, we don't want you here. You don't reflect our values. We're going to run somebody against you in the next primary, and we're not going to put you on committees. I'd like to see that. On the other part of it, part of the problem, I think, is that a large part of the Republican caucus is tone deaf. I don't think they're racist, but they don't understand when a piece of legislation comes up with racial overtones, how it's going to be perceived. And when, when someone calls them out on that, they, their immediate response is, we're not racist. Well, I don't think they're saying that they're racist. I think they're saying that they're tone deaf. And that when, when a legislation adversely affects a particular minority community, they ought to be aware of it, and they ought to be aware of how it's going to be perceived. And that's what's missing here. And the training, it seems to me, under those circumstances could be helpful because they need to be aware of the, pers 
of the perception of the minority community to some of these pieces. And I frankly think that with the very few racists that they have in their caucus, they need to take action because it reflects poorly on the, on the overall caucus. Mike O'Brien, uh, we see this with almost any advocacy where an issue or, or in this case uh, uh, an incident kind of sparks attention and outrage in some cases. You have a lot of folks come to the State House to, to talk to lawmakers, to advocate to lawmakers for or against something, and then it fizzles out. Same thing going to happen here? It's up to, it's, it's up to both sides. It's up to you know, the Republicans in the legislature to, um, to pay attention, to listen to, to what these advocacy groups are coming to the State House to say, and it's up to the advocacy groups to keep the pressure on. Because um, that is what, ultimately, it's, it's civic involvement and in your government, right? It's what the whole, the whole system's uh, built on. And, and, and it's the squeaky wheel, too. You pay, you pay attention to the people that are, that are showing up every day and are advocating openly and loudly for their, uh, uh, you know, for their interests. I think um, Anne has a good point. I, I, I don't think that the Republicans are racist. I think a lot of them come from parts of the state where you're never going to see an African-American walk, walk down the street. You know, they don't understand the, and the, one of the ironies for me in looking at economic opportunity, drug issues, education issues, the things that affect rural Indiana affect urban Indiana. They have a lot in common. And if they, and if they communicated more, they'd, they'd understand that and, and move forward to, to try to improve those, those types of issues. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita is being paid by private businesses to do consulting work, including $25,000 a year by a pharmaceutical company, and that's information partly revealed by a financial disclosure form he filed this week. Rokita's filing with the State Ethics Commission acknowledges being paid by three different companies, but his office wouldn't tell the Indianapolis Star, which first reported the disclosure, how much. Rokita also says he was not required to report being paid by any of the companies because his income from those clients doesn't make up more than 33% of his non-state income, which is the threshold required for reporting it to the Ethics Commission. There are no accusations that the Republican officeholders work for these companies violates any state laws. Rokita, who took office earlier this year, recently announced he was giving up his work and ownership stake in Indianapolis-based health benefits firm Apex Benefits after earlier saying he would continue as a strategic policy advisor for the company. John Schwannis, I checked, so I'm going to ask you the exact same question I asked you exactly three weeks ago. If Todd Rokita is following the law, and by all appearances he is, I'm not suggesting anything otherwise, but if he is, is this really a big deal? I'm going to give you pretty much the exact same answer. I don't, I don't have it verbatim, but it's a problem, and it's a, it's a perception problem. Yeah, it may be legal. Okay, fine. So let's move on. This is a problem for somebody who occupies the office, that is the chief law, legal officer of the state, and it's hard to say I won't intersect with the, uh, the, the issues or matters uh, on which I consult for, the, for outside interests because when you're the chief lawyer for the state of Indiana, almost by definition, you're conflicted out of everything because you never know what issues are going to come up. It, it's just such a, a – the scope of, of that office is so wide and so significant. I mean, if anything, what he needs to do if he doesn't like the salary is probably lobby to have a, a pay increase. I mean, it's a shame that – Well, they, we've seen that not go so well, well that for does, attorneys general I, I, in the past. Right. I'm, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because that's not going to happen. But it, it's – and I looked at what happens. There doesn't seem to be a policy across the country, but in the Justice Department federally – Nobody uh, in the Justice Department can do legal work, and maybe he would say this is not legal work, it's advice. But you can't do legal work 
unless you do it pro bono. It's, it's a, it's a free. So if, if he stops taking money to advise these people and does it pro bono as a community service, then everybody's fine. That seems unlikely, too. Okay. Um, this is my day of I sarcasm. Mean, it, this, is, this is, I mean, but to, to John's point, the, I mean, he can say, well, you know, for instance, with this pharmaceutical company, even if he was doing something good, like going after an, a pharmaceutical company who was doing the wrong thing, the questions arise. Well, did he go after them because he, he's getting money from this other company? Doesn't this just create problems for himself? Well, it clearly is. <laughs> I mean, and he's going to, he's, you know, found himself acting, he's acting like, oh, look, I told you these things, even though I didn't have to. We're technically under the amount, but I want to be open and transparent. No. He told people because he knows people are watching now, and he knows if it comes out six months from now that he's taking 25000 from someone, it's going to look even worse. So in some ways, he's trying to mitigate by even, try, like, being open. To, to the idea that he isn't required by law because uh, to report these things because they are under this, this dollar threshold, is that a problem with the ethics rules for people who are full-time working a for the absolutely. government? Absolutely. He ran for this office knowing what it paid, okay? And, you know, you, you talk, we always hear in the legislature about how corrupt Illinois is. That's because their laws are tougher, okay? And you have to disclose these things. These ethics re requirements are designed for a citizen legislature, not for full-time state employees. And they need to have a separate ethics requirement there. If he took the job knowing what the pay is, he shouldn't be doing any outside consulting because it does and has to conflict with what, his, what he's supposed to be doing for Hoosiers. I mentioned in the piece, and, and uh, he, the first thing we learned was that he had a, another side job with Apex Benefits. He had a lot of attention brought on him, and, and then he said, okay, I'm going to just step away from that, divest myself, all of that. So you do that, and then you disclose all of these things and don't think it's a problem? Does that work logically? Nope, it does not. <laughs> I said three weeks ago, you don't want to be in a place as an elected official, no matter what you're doing, saying, hey, no, this is, it's fine. What I'm doing is legal. Well, I'm not breaking the law. And then you stop doing that thing and go, hey, none of this stuff's illegal either, and I'm doing all of that. Um, I don't know. Ann's correct. There is a difference between a citizen legislature and, and, these, and statewide elected officials and, and state employees. If you, do, if you want to take all of the conflicts out of the legislature, you've got to, say, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to say they, they, can't, they can't have a part-time job, and we're going to pay them $100,000 a year because no one can live on 11000 or 20000 or whatever they're, whatever they're paying, uh, whatever they're getting paid. Now there's no incentive to go do what Run they do, which is, like, disrupt them. your life considerably. Um, but they're, they're just different things, and we can't and we can't mix the two. And All right. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should Todd Rakita do paid consulting work for private companies while serving as attorney general? A, yes, or B, no. Last week, we asked you, will U.S. Senator Todd Young win re-election in 2022? 74% say yes. 26% say no. That feels about right to me. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Well, Indiana ranks among the worst states in the country for voter turnout, and improving that is the goal of a new nonpartisan organization, HOPE, Hoosiers Organized, People Energized. HOPE is made up principally of longtime Democratic political operatives, raising questions about how nonpartisan it is. But founding board member Arielle Brandy has done voter outreach for a long time and says she knows how to speak to Republicans and those who don't identify with a party at all. Especially in some of these communities where they have not been talked to about voter registration and the importance of it, 
is more important to us. And if we can reach them, um, especially in these marginalized communities, I think it's very, very important um, for us and will help increase turnout. Led by Brandon Evans, Hope aims to register 100,000 Hoosiers over the next year. We picked a big goal on purpose um, to really, really uh, force ourselves to put in the hard work to make us uh, successful as an organization and, and make an impact in our state. Evans says the group is funded initially through grassroots donations. Nikki Kelly, Hope is not the first group in Indiana whose goal is better voter engagement and outreach. Is there a reason to be skeptical, quite frankly, that they will be successful? I don't think skeptical is the right word. I think maybe more just cautious and, and maybe realistic. I mean, we see organizations that have popped up in recent years trying to do the same thing. So it, it's re, it seems to be really hard to move the meter on this issue. And I also find it interesting that they're focusing, at least initially, on registering Hoosiers instead of actually getting them. Like, we have a ton of people who are registered. We can't get them to actually vote. This sort of goes back to what I talked about in, in a tangential way with the Black Caucus not too long ago, which is we see these groups pop up or we see advocacy pop up, and then it sort of peters out. Why, why should we hope that this effort will be more long-lasting, sustainable? Well, we, we, ha we hope because democracy is fragile and we all have to invest in it and do everything possible to, as Pollyannish as it might sound or as you know, being cockeyed optimist, we we laud this group as we've uh, applauded Indiana Citizen and other groups that have uh, been there doing similar uh, work. So, because we can't give up, yeah. you know. Um, it's tough, though, because a lot of this is rooted in redistricting, I would argue, and gerrymandering, which you have to be have the endurance to last 10 years to the next decennial census. Uh, and, and you have a system that's so entrenched in Indiana, it's, you're fighting a lot more than just getting people off the couch. Let's put it that way. The idea that um, they, they're starting this in a non-election year, there are no elections that are happening this calendar year, is that almost better because, um, on the one hand, you, you, you A, have time, but at the same time, is that harder because how do you get people excited for something that's not happening for well, a year? It, it, you know, it depends on what's going on, and certainly there's a lot going on in Washington. People might be excited by that, but you, 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 we have to make the effort, like the Citizen, Indiana Citizen Foundation, because... It's not, gerrymandering is a huge part of that, but we also put obstructions in the way of uh, voting in Indiana. We're not quite as bad as the southern states, which have taken Jim Crow to a very, very subtle uh, uh, messaging. But all of these pieces of legislation, demanding ID and restricting absentee or voting by mail and all, are designed to repress the vote. They're not designed to weed out fraud. They're designed to repress the vote, and they do it. And when you have that kind of systemic attempts on the part of the Republican majority to keep the vote down, you have to fight twice as hard to get the vote up. Mike O'Brien, there, if there's one key to successful voter outreach, in your mind, what is it? You know, the, the, the candidate matters a lot. I was just going to say, the candidate matters a lot. Um, the effort that the candidates put in, um, even in districts that they think that they're going to they're gonna win relatively handily, being engaged with voters and, and running campaigns. We have legislators that don't, don't do any of that because they know they're going to win, yeah. but engaging those voters, and, and we see communities that have referenda for, you know, school referenda, for example, huge turnout, you know, I mean, because there's a huge interest in the community and in that outcome, and that, that matters most of all. all right. Well, Indiana K-12 teachers, school staff, and child care workers can get the COVID-19 vaccine at any site in the state starting Monday. 
Last week, the Biden administration made the vaccine available for educators through federal pharmacy program sites in Indiana, Kroger, Meyer, and Walmart. And Governor Eric Holcomb says the federal government went a step further this week. We were using data to drive all our decisions about those who were most at risk. Uh, the administration, our federal partners, have said you need to um, add in to any site, and so we're, we will do that. Holcomb says that forced addition will have an impact on getting the vaccine to Hoosiers with a long list of comorbidities. Mike O'Brien, I was just saying before we came out of that video package that it's unusual to see the governor like visibly annoyed. It, he seemed visibly annoyed by, by the, the federal government stepping in and saying you have to do this thing when teachers could already in Indiana get vaccines at, at any federal pharmacy program site. So is the governor, is it unfair of him to, in his statement, sort of pit teachers against those with these comorbidities by saying, well, the latter group might have to wait a little longer now? He, he didn't pit them against each other. They were pitted against each other, just like other groups were pitted against, against each other, um, whether they're grocery store workers or restaurant workers or anybody else that feels like they're, you know, having to show up for work and, and in danger. The federal government just picked a side that, that now the state's got uh, to live with. I think the governor's frustration is because this is being so well run because we're taking age groups that capture a lot of people with these comorbidities, the vast majority, and now you're saying, well, a 23-year-old teacher who's completely healthy can get this over a 45-year-old with a heart, you know, and, and the problem with that is you have a limited quantity. Yeah. Is, is that, is, is Mike right, the federal government just decided to say, well, teachers, yeah, sure. I, I think the federal government decided to say that, that children need to be back in the classroom. And in order to be back in the classroom every day, and in order not to, to uh, encourage the spread of the virus, teachers need to be inoculated. I, I, I'm all for it. I, I think the, that the president has promised uh, and obviously with the, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, people are getting more and more and more. I think we're going to even advance it beyond his May 1st de deadline for everybody who wants it to get it. And I, I want the kids back in school. And it seems to me if the teachers need the kind of reassurance of having the vaccine, I'm pleased the president did it. Well, I, certainly everybody's rooting for it to get ava become available to anybody who wants it as soon as possible. That is Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is... Democrat and Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwanis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Stay safe, stay healthy, please wear a mask, and sign up to get a vaccine if you can, and join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.